Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week, our guest on the show is Dr. Marcus Ford, PhD. Dr. Ford is the co-founder of Flagstaff College and a retired professor from Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. He's the author of several books, including Beyond the Modern University, Toward a Constructive Postmodern University, and William James, A New Perspective. And I'm really excited to have Marcus on the, on the show. Um, we first spoke perhaps seven years ago, uh, very early on in the process of the development of Thoreau College and early on in the process of Flagstaff College. And Marcus, I would consider you to be perhaps the earliest theorist of my, the microcollege movement. So it's a real privilege to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure to be on, Jacob. I'm a big fan of what you're doing at Deep Springs College and all the other little efforts around the country that are trying to do something different with higher education. Indeed. Yeah, so as you know, um, here on the podcast, we like to start with some some biography, uh, reflections on biography. So perhaps you could, could reach back to the time when you were 18, 19, 20 years old and share with us a little bit about where you were, what you were doing, who was influential, and what experiences shaped you during that period. I can. Um, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. And when I was 18, I was just graduating from high school. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a very stable home, and my parents were, um, you know, very um, good people and concerned about, um, you know, making sure they themselves, but and their children, and I have lots of siblings, uh, were good people and you know, were aware of what was going on in the world and were doing what they could to make it a better place. Um, this was, and then I went off to college and um, I, I actually went to Duke University and um, spent a semester there and saying, this is not for me, and transferred to uh, the University of Puget Sound, which is up in Tacoma and much closer to the part of the country that I was familiar with and um, ended up um, with an English major, but um, not terribly, um, I, I was somewhat involved in kind of the tail end of the, the most active part of the civil rights movement, and then um, somewhat involved in the anti-Vietnam War thing. But what was pivotal to me <laughs> was when I graduated with an English major, I, I had a low draft number, uh -huh. and so I had to um, either go fight or leave the country or go to seminary, and I chose to go to seminary. That was one of the uh, few um, deferments that was still viable. Um, but it, So I went to the School of Theology at Claremont, and that was really the, um, the most important intellectual um, event in my life. I, I, I'll talk more about it in a minute, but um, that was really a unique place, and I, <laughs> I didn't 
choose it knowing what I was getting into. I chose it to stay out of something else. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a very fortunate accident on my part. Yeah, those are the, the times in which one lives are, are, are have been important themes in these in these biographies that we've heard. Um, yes, thanks thanks for those reflections. Um, so you you've embarked you know you've had a long career as as an academic and as as a teacher in higher education. Um, and I guess you know as as we as we move towards talking about you know what inspired the the beginning of Flagstaff College and your interest in in micro colleges, tiny colleges. Um, can you talk a little bit about your career as as in, in education and and what in that experience led you to be interested in organizations and in projects like this? Yeah, I um, I felt fortunate to to even get a job when I graduated when I got my PhD. It was, the market had basically closed down, and I got a, a job at Eureka College in uh, Eureka, Illinois, and um, was you know it was a big shift in culture from coming from Southern California to a, a little town in the Midwest. Isn't Eureka College but, is the alma mater of Ronald Reagan. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I I learned that uh, right after I uh, got an interview at the job. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's you know it's a very conservative part of the country. Um, it was then. It probably still is. Um, but I w- I got a job teaching philosophy and religious studies and was pretty happy there. Um, and then it slowly kind of dawned on me. I, that's when I was still in my kind of postgraduate school mode of publishing and building a career for myself. Um, but then it dawned on me that, you know, the world is facing some really serious issues, um, especially around the environment. And teaching, you know, the history of philosophy or world religions is... Um, you know, it has some importance, but it wasn't really getting at the most important issues of the day. And so that got me thinking about, you know, what colleges are and what they should be and how they developed and, you know, what kind of curriculum makes sense at a given time and that sort of stuff. So it, I, I put myself in the category of a very slow learner that, um, you know, these issues had been around for 20 years, 30 years before I started, you know, taking them seriously. So, but at, at some point I, I, I saw the light and then um, that got me thinking, you know, what can education do differently um, and what should it be doing at this point in, in our history? Yeah, and I think something I've been enjoying um, hearing from from people who've had longer careers in higher education is is your reflections or observations on on how the student how the students have evolved how student uh, entering college or you know going through college today how are they different from from when you started out um, earlier on in your career and and how do, how might that influence you know the the shape of education and and, and what types of programs might serve them. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate um, to go to school at a time when, you know, the U.S. was not only the dominant superpower militarily, but also economically. And there was never any sense that 
you needed to go to college to get a good job or that, you know, if you didn't have the right credentials, you were going to be left out on the streets and stuff. So people basically went to college um, because they were interested in learning. And so people would switch majors and they would, you know, take whatever courses interested them and they weren't building a resume and networking and there wasn't that anxiety that the world is falling apart and the middle class is slipping away and you know it was really a very i mean that that is how i approached it and i think most of my uh classmates did too you know i i haven't done a lot of sociological analysis of it uh but now it seems like students are very concerned about um, their own particular future and they're going to college and it's a huge investment and they have to use this time to build a, you know, a resume so that they can get a job so that they can have a, a, a shot at a decent life. Um, so altogether different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in an environment like that, I wonder, you know, um, programs like ours and yours um, are are which are you could say experimental. They're they're new. They're on the fringes and of of higher education in general. Um, in some sense, they're 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 risky, right? They're they're not necessarily. It's clear there's a well beaten path to to a career or that kind of security, right? What what type of student or what or why might uh, a student choose to do something like that in this environment in a situation where, where there is some more precarity in in people's lives? Yeah, and you know, I um, to be honest, um, I mean, there are good reasons for doing it, but most people aren't there, mm-hmm. um, so. Um, it's very hard to make the case that um, these kind of risks are uh, important to um, to take at this point, and that in some ways the bigger risk is following the conventional path. That um, you know the dominant culture is still um, you know sending the message that everything's going to be fine. And if you do these traditional things, you will have a good life just like, you know, I did and like other people have in the past. Um, that um, we, we've had a very hard time finding students um, that are willing to, to take that risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in our experience, you know, there, there, there does seem to be a, um, there is a, there's a certain strand of student out there who are awake to the levels of of crisis that your your materials are pointing to towards ecological crisis, other sorts of breakdowns in society, and and for those students, um, those seem to be our, our our golden students when they find us, um, and they're really they're really I think important people to to be able to serve. Right, these are the people who are going to have a real impact on the world. Um, so for, I said, we, you know, let, let me ahead. just say, Jacob, that we've actually. Uh, largely because of the trouble of finding students that was amplified in the time of COVID, mm-hmm. which I guess we're not officially out of yet. <laughs> but um, we actually as sort of uh, shifted directions toward what might be called community education, yeah. so, where we so, run Morgan, these large programs for people who 
for the most part, already have degrees and jobs and personal savings and stuff, but they still want, um, you know, an educational experience that will help them think through these complex issues. Yeah, so that I, I was um, definitely would like to to get into that story. Um, I think as as a good social entrepreneur, you're nimble and, and and responding to things that you're observing. So, yeah, maybe maybe you could take us uh, to the beginning of this story um, of, of Flagstaff College, what you started out trying to do, and how that has evolved. Um, and before that, you know, one of the things we've identified in in organizations that we are identifying as microcolleges or peers in this movement one way or another is a real connection to place. So for people who haven't been there, could you describe Flagstaff, Arizona a little bit for, for people? What kind of place is it and, and, and why is it a good place for, for innovative education? Right. You're going to, I'm uh, focused now on the last part of your question instead yeah. of the first. Sure. But, uh, so remind me of the first in the minute. Flagstaff's a great place. I mean, it's, um, we're up on the Colorado Plateau, so a lot of people here in Arizona think we're out in the desert and stuff, but we're up high and we get four seasons. Um, the seasons here, like everywhere else, are changing. We used to get um, 110 or so inches of snow every year. Now it's closer to about 50 or 60. So uh, we're in a big pine forest and we're right close to the Hopi and the Navajo and the Havasupai and um, a lot of other indigenous people in this area. Um, so it's culturally diverse. It is, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting part of the United States. You have very clean air and very little water. Uh, that's uh, mm-hmm. our major struggle. And now we're getting forest fires and you know, flooding and those kinds of things, but that's, you know, the, that's what the future holds for a lot of places mm-hmm. in the United States and elsewhere. Great. But, yeah, so, yeah, if you could take us to the, to the beginning of the, of the story of, of Flagstaff College, you know, what was, what was the, the impetus for that, for the, for the beginning, and, and what was the initial vision? The initial vision um, was something um, like Deep Springs College where it would be a very small uh, group of students and faculty that were um, coming together um, for the purpose of making the world a better place uh, through education. And one of our ideas that I'm not sure was a great idea, but it uh, had a certain uh, plausibility to it at the time, was whereas Deep Springs and now Outer Coast and um, other uh, schools are looking at Deep Springs do the first two years and then students transfer to a regular four-year university and get a degree in whatever area they pursue. We thought, well, we would do the last two years. It would be small like Deep Springs, but we'd do the junior and senior year as it were rather than the first two. And um, the plan was to work with a local community college or have students transfer from other universities after a couple of years. And then they would come to, the idea was we'd have one major in sustainability and social change. And so that would give us focus and would um, be easier to carry off 
uh, because we weren't offering multiple majors, we were just offering the one. So that was the original plan that we worked on for many years, uh, well, for several years of actually, you know, advertising, trying to recruit students, working with uh, high schools and other, you know, kind of traditional means of recruiting students. Mm-hmm. So the the, um, the the single major, sustainability and social change, um, and what what ideas did you have about how to how to approach those those topics or that that uh, that major? You know, um, it was um, you know it seems like from my personal experience, a lot of <laughs> um, college students are. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a nice way to put it. I was going to say historically illiterate, but um, they they don't have much of a sense of the past. And so, you know, when there's a challenge, they say, well, you know, we can't ever do that. And they have very little understanding of how social movements have been organized in the past and how, you know, some failed and some succeeded and, you know, how long it takes and the kinds of tactics that were employed and stuff. So part of the um, curriculum was just in terms of social movements um, around the world, but, you know, mainly in the United States and um, how they've worked. Um, Another part of the curriculum was around, um, you know, the environmental challenges that we face. And again, many people have a sense that things are going to get warmer and more storms and, and, you know, they they have some sense, but, you know, the complexity of the issues, including, you know, mass migration and disease vectors and crop failures and, you know, it's a very uh, radical shift in things. And most people simply don't understand that. So that is another part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then another part that um, again is I think kind of unique to uh, what we were proposing is um, are some courses around worldviews. It seems like the modern world is a particular way of seeing the world and some of these problems that we have are embedded in the assumptions of the modern worldview. So if we're really going to get to the crux of it, we I mean, technology is great, and some kinds of what I might call superficial changes are, are really important. But if the problems have their roots in the way we think about things and our values, then finally we're not going to address those problems without, you know, examining what the root of those problems are and finding out some other way to to think about things. Yes, indeed. So, you know, it's a, a kind of a complex curriculum, but all based around the notion that the status quo is not sustainable or just. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. 
For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. Yeah, I think it reminds me of uh, you. Person connected with your project is David Orr, who, who you've connected us yep. with and was on the podcast a couple of months ago. Um, he's I think, powerfully articulate on this observation that you know our environmental crises and other crises that we are experiencing are you know they're, they're inseparable from our worldviews and also from our mode and and form of education. Higher education is deeply implicated in in all of those things, and that's for me certainly a big reason to to dig into reform of higher education, thinking about new ways to do it, um, and including you know, what you're saying, articulating, you know, making explicit the worldviews that are that are at work um, and exploring, you know, ways that we might look at things differently. <laughs> yeah, no, David was pivotal in me getting clarity on some of these issues, and he's extremely articulate, and um, no, I'm a big David Orr fan. <laughs> So it sounds like, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, um, the recruitment for that initial program, that senior college um, incorporated uh, into the into the community college there was was hard to recruit for him from. So but that's that wasn't the end of the story. There's, you've tried some other things and, and some of them have had a very different response, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> ironically, I've never been a fan of distance education. <laughs> um <laughs> because it, it just seems so impersonal. And I know you can take the most um, lively, engaging person, and when you're watching them on a flat screen, all of a sudden they become, you know, boring after about five minutes. So uh, for a whole variety of reasons, I've really shunned distance education, but during the um, pandemic and the especially during the more serious lockdown phase of things, we offered some courses where we had, you know, excellent speakers um, that we couldn't afford to bring to town, um, address a group of people that were all reading the same book and um, talking with each other, in some cases face-to-face in groups of four or five that, they felt secure and they met outdoors with masks on and things. Sometimes they were in a group of four or five um, here in town, but uh, talking on the internet and stuff. So we devised a kind of modified curriculum where it was um, a few Zoom lectures uh, and um, a lot of um, face-to-face group meetings. And um, people responded very well to that. And that's what we're continuing to do right now. So what, what's up, what were some of the books or topics that, that these were focused on? Well, the, the main book was um, The Ministry for the Future by Tim Stanley Robinson, um, which is a kind of, you know, it's funny. If, I think the normal person would see it as a dystopian view of the future because tens of millions of people die because of climate change. And one, there, there are many uh, features of how the world turns the corner, but it does involve acts of terrorism and things that, um, you know, most people don't, <laughs> you know, that are ethically hard to defend. Um, but um, so that, that was a, a very powerful book that we, uh, read and talked about, but then we had um, 
you know, uh, Erica Chenoweth uh, from Harvard spoke with us and Bill McKibben and um, a number of local community people who are involved in sustainability efforts. Um, our current project um, is going to revolve around the book, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle of her book is Capitalism Versus the Climate. And so we're going to really look at that tension between capitalism and the environment. Um, and we have, you know, again, a couple of Zoom speakers, but people are going to be meeting in groups of five or six to talk about the book. And we kind of structure some questions that they might want to focus on and, you know, break up the readings into digestible chunks and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so who is participating in these? What, where are they coming from and how do they connect with you? They're mainly people, we're focused in uh, Flagstaff. Okay. And, um, you know, we have our network and we have our website and uh, mailing list and things. Um, and um, they tend to be um, very well-educated people. <laughs> um, and, I mean, they almost all have bachelor's degrees. Many have PhDs and a lot of degrees and things. So it's a, it's a, you know, very well-educated group of people. We also have, uh, I think, 12 or so high school students hmm. who have their own cohort and their own reading group. And, um, but they participate in the, the Zoom lectures and they're reading the same book that they're reading it with their peers. Um, so, I think we have about 50 people all in all, 60 maybe, um, right now. Yeah. Yeah, so The Ministry for the Future is a book that's currently on my on my table, intended to be read. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I definitely am, enjoy you know, that sort of literature, you know, futurology, dystopian literature. Um, this past spring, we had um, within our, our Great Books kind of discussion series, which is, is our kind of version of this, I guess. It, we have never done it on Zoom, but it's a community education, people from all kind of walks of life, and you know, generally like classics, works of philosophy. And um, last spring, we did a series of, of sort of dystopian literature, um, you know, classics like Brave New World, um, you know, Octavia Butler, um, and as well as some right. essay writings. And it was a really rich, interesting discussion. Um, one comment that, that came out of the participants there, which was, again, a combination of college students and, and, and people of all ages, was uh, at the end, they felt kind of depressed. <laughs> um, and I guess that that is um, one of the things that really struck me by looking through your, your website again, the Flagstaff College website, was you know, you've got this list of 11 kind of uh, reasons for this type of education and you know the the, the 11th the 11th reason is that these that a college um, you know an, an enterprise like this is a site of hope um, and so I'm wondering how you know how at, just as an educator and how you approach um, you know, looking at at uh, you know the situation we're in at you know visions for, for how it might continue to deteriorate and and how do we um, how do we how do we become a site of hope um, as, as as centers of education yeah. Um, you know, I think David Orr has this uh, <laughs> phrase that he coined about how hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Um, you know, we, we have to certainly qualify what counts as hope, uh, given.
given the situation that we're in. But um, it does seem like hopelessness is really um, the death knell of <laughs> of a community or of a civilization or of anything. We can't give up hope. But we're always having to kind of rethink what we can hope for under these circumstances and um, what's realistic and what isn't. And what we have to do to make that hope um, or that outcome um, viable. I mean, we can't just sit back and hope that everything turns out all right. That is, to my mind, almost as bad as being utterly hopeless. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of hope that I don't want to advocate for at all. But on the other hand, uh, I don't want people to give up hope because there are things that can be done that will make a, a big difference. And so we have to do whatever we can to make the world better than it would be if we didn't do those things. Right. And, you know, and education is a way of helping us get clearer about what to hope for. I mean, I know this won't come as news to you, but um, they do these surveys about what college students want while they're going to college. And almost all of them um, put down, I want to be rich. <laughs> and you go, yeah, well, good luck with that, uh, given the circumstances. Um, so that's a kind of false hope to my mind. And we have to teach them, you know, a, a kind of hope that is more satisfying and more sustainable and um, more morally justifiable. Another thing that I've seen in you know, working with students here is that, uh, you know, you know, information, education about about current circumstances, about about science, about about you know historical trends, things like that, is is certainly valuable and important. Um, another thing, and I think something that that ways that we're addressing this question of of, of hope and and uh, you know seeing yourself in the future is is our practical things. So um, you you connect on your website also knowledge and know how right right. right? So so just right. like what can I actually do in the face of of, of where we are right now. Yeah. You know, um, you know, one of the things that I think you do very well in, in Deep Springs and stuff is, you know, students have a body <laughs> and they need to use that body. Mm -hmm. And um, they, there are these practical skills that people, once everyone knew how to do these things and now Nobody knows how to do them. They just, you know, hire out or don't even attempt to do it. So I do think that there is, you know, um, a, a deep value in knowing how to use our bodies and knowing how to make things and how to actually, you know, just in our world, practical skills like how to use social media or how to write a grant or how to, um, you know, one of the things I, I really like about Deep Springs is this emphasis on public speaking, how, how to give a, a speech that is, you know, persuasive to, you know, on an issue you care about and stuff. So I, I do think those practical skills, um, both physical and intellectual, are an important part of, of a person's education. 
Thoreau College is a leader in an emergent movement dedicated to the renewal and revitalization of higher education through the creation of new, humanly scaled institutions with holistic curricula known as micro-colleges. Thoreau College, higher education for the whole human being. So now you, you know, the, the type of, of programs that you, you've stumbled into here, you've, you've made a connection to, to actually forms of education that were important historically in the United States as well. And um, yeah, could you share a little bit about that? And what's, what's the heritage of this sort of general community education? You know, um, there's, there's a couple of examples that I, um, you know, I've heard of and stuff, and then I started looking into, um, you know, one that um, a lot of Reformed Jews at least know about is the Lehrer House in uh, Berlin. In, was it Berlin? It was in Germany. Um, maybe it was in Munich. Um, where in, in the 1920s, the most pressing issue of the day for most uh, German Jews was what does it mean to be a Jew in a secular world? Uh, and especially in a in a Christian country, and um, so Franz Rosenzweig put together this learning house, uh, Lehrhaus. Lehrhaus. That'd be L E H R. Right, H A U S. Lehrhaus. Lehrhaus. Okay. And um, you know, most of the students, it was of course unaccredited. There were no grades. There was it wasn't a, a school in the traditional sense. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't a school in the modern sense, let me put it that way. Uh-huh. It was very much in the traditional sense. But um, m- most of the students were university students or graduates of, of a university who wanted to address this very complex existential question of identity and meaning, but also of worldviews. Um, so that, that, to my mind, of course, it all fell apart um, mm-hmm. <laughs> under Hitler. Uh, so, um, but a remarkable kind of uh, ten-year run or so of um, intellectual work um, outside the university system. The, you know, the universities in German in Germany were the best in the world, but they weren't addressing the question that these people wanted to address um, because it didn't fit into any academic discipline. But in in the United States in the nineteen in the teens in the, the turn of the century, at the same time that uh, Deep Springs was being founded, there were a number of labor colleges that were being founded um, um, in New York and Arkansas and Seattle and Denver and around the country, with the idea that education, the the true purpose of education is to improve the quality of life for the working class, which is to say for 99% of the population. And the traditional model of higher education is very individualistic. It's not about changing the social system. It's about moving up in the social system. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Wes Jackson, he says, there's really only one academic major, upward mobility. I mean, everybody goes to college to improve their own life. And 
these socialist colleges or labor colleges said, you know, there's a kind of education um, that we can impart or discover that will improve the lives of everybody, whether they go to college or not. And so it's not this sense of I'm going, I'm investing in myself. I'm investing, I'm, I'm using my time to make the world better for everyone. And I, and I think um, L.L. Nunn, in this whole no, notion of service and giving back, I think that was still, I, I think it's basically a Judeo-Christian notion that education is uh, for the common good, whether you define it in terms of, you know, Christian culture or um, transforming the civilization uh, to be fairer to the workers or however, you know, somehow it's that notion that we have a responsibility to each other into the future, and that education needs to be uh, geared toward this, to, toward those ends. Uh-huh. So, interesting contrast. I think I mean, LL Nunn's project at Deep Springs um, is is explicitly it's micro, right? It's it's oriented towards right. a, a very right. small. Uh, vanguard or elite, a tiny group of people who are who are going to go out and and impact the world through lives of service, but in a, in a high impact kind of way. Right. It seems like the labor college has a very different theory of change than that. Yeah. So, yes and no. I mean, they started with sixteen students or twelve students, uh-huh. um, and the the bigger ones got up to about one hundred and thirty. So by contemporary standards, they were still very small. And I I was looking at um, Commonwealth College um, and their notion was that you'd study, you'd be in class for four hours a day and then you would work on the uh, farm uh, for four hours a day and you'd play for four hours a day. Uh, So there's some parallels with, with Deep Springs there. But again, it was we will train leaders to go out into society to take up these causes that would transform society. So, you know, the difference between 26 students and 100 students, you know, okay, it's a factor of four, but but compared to the U of A or or University of Michigan, it's kind of trivial. <laughs> right, definitely in, in the kind of working out a definition of what we mean by micro-college, 150 is, is still micro-college for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I think the, the, the overall uh, mission was, was very similar, that mm-hmm. um, knowledge is powerful and it needs to be used for the betterment of all. Um, and I think now we think knowledge is useful and you should somehow harness it for your particular purposes. <laughs> so it's a very different right. shift. It's a weapon or a tool in your own pocket for, for your yeah, own life. Yeah. 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 So can you can you draw the connection between you know, the, these historical precedents, especially the, the labor colleges and, and what you're offering right now? Um, is it does it have similar goals, similar similar kind of trajectory to what you're what you're um, you're seeing as outcomes from this? I think so. You know, it, um, of course, um, 
you know, the situations are different. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that in, you know, the 20s and 30s, um, the labor situation was in the United States was much worse off than it is today. Um, but the environmental situation was much better off than it is today. And that um, it seems that we now can't be, um, I mean, we, we have to be sensitive to the, you know, uh, social injustices, but the larger context is now um, planetary health, which is to say food and air and water and, you know, disease and all those things that are, in some ways, are as much social issues as they are, quote, environmental or scientific issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it seems that we don't want to just replicate what was being done in the, you know, teens, the 20s and the 30s. Uh, things have changed, and mm-hmm. now there's a different form of education. Yeah, you're, you're talking about, it was reminding me a bit about... Um... You know, just this week, actually, we in an earlier interview, we talked to a couple of folks um, from Wisconsin who are our founders of live and work at a Catholic worker farm, and uh, we talked about the the Catholic worker idea of agronomic university and uh, you know Christian anarchism and and the workers movement in that context. Are you familiar with that at all? I'm not. Um, I, I mean, I, I know enough to know what those words mean and why they make sense together but i don't know exactly what's going on that's that's a few steps before most people but um yeah so i, I, I would suggest there there's some resonances there of a similar time period i mean education you know, you know working class education integrated with 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 cultural activities with uh with practical farm work things like yeah. that um as as a as a transformative thing you know along that same era of you know, progressive education, John Dewey, Deep Springs, um, also the, the the Scandinavian folk school movement, which is another another right. um, theme we've been exploring on these podcasts. We've had uh, Mark Engler, who's a very interesting social justice. He has the Center for the Working Poor in Los Angeles, and he comes out of a kind of Catholic Christian mystical tradition. Um, anyway, so you know there there are deep resonance between mm-hmm. those kinds of efforts and I'm, I'm glad to hear that there are these Catholics who are out doing it you know doing it again or doing it anew or whatever the right way to describe it is yeah this is again another hundred year or more long tradition now of, of real boots on the ground kind of practical service to the world um yeah, so I'm wondering, you know, at this point, you, you've there's been some twists and turns in the story. You've tried some things and and then switched to other things. And I'm wondering if you, at this moment, you know, when you project into the future, what's what's next for Flagstaff College? And and you know, if it's you've taken what you've learned, where, what would it look like uh, as it moves towards a more mature phase of, of existence? Yeah, um, excellent question. I I think we're going to continue doing what we're doing now. Um, until we try something different. <laughs> no, um, you know, what we're doing now seems to be meeting a real need. And, um, you know, it's it's work, but it, it, it seems like it's worthwhile. 
And so we want to kind of expand upon it and keep doing it. Um, I'm, I'm in touch with some people that are trying to get a new accrediting body going that would make it easier, I think, to start uh, a kind of experimental college more like what you're doing and more like what we originally intended to do. So I, I want to keep, you know, an ear to the ground and some involvement in, in that. Um, but, um, you know, and I, if, if there are other people who want to do that kind of work, I certainly want to encourage them to do that. But I think for the foreseeable future, um, Flagstaff College is going to keep going this direction of um, community education, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly an important mission as well. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, folks you know, are interested in in some of your earlier thinking about about micro colleges. I encourage them to check out your article in Yes Magazine from 2016. Um, which is called "Why We Need Tiny Colleges." Um, it's linked on the Thoreau College website to this day, and I think and, you know a lot of a lot of things you say there to me really, you know stand up. And there's some great examples of other programs, including Deep Springs and and Sterling College and places like that. And let me just say, I, I think if there were a thousand tiny colleges, uh, that would be a real, or 500 tiny colleges, or a hundred. <laughs> you know, I, I think the more the better. But I, I think that there is such value in that form of higher education that um, that needs to be um, pursued with a lot of gusto and enthusiasm and financing um, and accreditation, if, if that's the way to go. Uh, so uh, I think that is really, really important. I, I don't want to downplay that at all. I'm just saying that for our particular endeavor, I think we're going to be putting our effort in a slightly different way mm-hmm. for the you know for the foreseeable future. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your, your story there with us. And uh, I think you know we are in, you know here at the podcast and at Thoreau College we are we're interested in, in building this this movement, and that includes learning from things that uh, that are difficult and learning from you know what we encounter fortuitously along the way. And so, really appreciate the chance to hear your story and uh, and also your, your your thoughts about this about education in general. This I think it opens up the question or you know the fact there's there's history of, of education for adults that a lot of people don't know about. It's uh, there's a book in there, or several books somewhere that that someone should write. Um, certainly, it's I'm excited. I would really appreciate learning about the labor colleges and the other programs you've mentioned. Great, great. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing this podcast and getting the word out, and that you're, you know, working to establish this uh, this college um, up there in Wisconsin, and um, that you're pushing the the small college movement. I, I think it's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for being with us today, Marcus.